0: Hey, We the People listeners, we need your help to make this show even better. Go to bit.ly slash WTPfeedback to share your feedback. That's bit.ly slash feedback. I'm Jeffrey Rosen,
1: President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we dive into the world of elections and campaign finance, six years after the Supreme Court's ruling in the Citizens United case. In that case, the court held that corporate funding of independent political communications in campaigns for public office can't be limited under the First Amendment. We're now going to examine cutting-edge questions that have arisen post-Citizens United. Since then, the court has struck down aggregate limits on individual political contributions in a single election cycle. There have been proposals to overturn Citizens United through constitutional amendment. And at this point in the 2016 campaign, super PACs and other outside groups have raised nearly $400 million and spent nearly half that amount. Joining me to explore the constitutional landscape after Citizens United And to assess the decision's impact on the 2016 elections are two of America's leading experts on the front lines of these important constitutional debates. David Keating is president of the Center for Competitive Politics, and Paul Ryan is deputy executive director of the Campaign Legal Center. David, Paul, thank you so much for being here.
2: Pleasure to be with you. Welcome. Good to be here.
1: Wonderful. Well, let me start with uh, a question that's been much mooted in the news recently, and that is the effect of money on the 2016 campaign. Uh, commentators have noted that Jeb Bush spent uh, nearly $120 million, but uh, dropped out of the race, whereas Donald Trump has spent about $17 million of his own money and is at the top of the Republican field. David, let me just begin with you. Uh, does that uh, suggest that... Uh, big money contributes to electoral success or not? And what should we make of these numbers?
2: Well, uh, a mathematician might say it's necessary, but not sufficient. So you, you need money to run a basic campaign, but money is not sufficient to win you the nomination. Or as uh, you know, the Beatles once sung, money can't buy you love, but it can't buy you votes either. <laughs> and in this cycle, what we've seen is uh, the big spending candidates don't seem to be going anywhere. In fact, President Obama really got his political start running against a self-funder who spent millions of dollars in the Illinois uh, Senate race, and but Obama wound up the victor, and now he's been president for seven years. So clearly, we see example after example of self-funder or big spending campaigns. Uh, basically, you can you can talk to the voters about an issue or a topic, but you can't make them agree with you. You can't make them vote for you, and you can't make them vote for the candidate you like best.
1: Thanks so much for that. Uh, Paul, uh, critics of money in politics say that the evidence of Bush and Trump is like citing weather reports to disprove climate change. They point to the fact that the candidate with most money wins the overwhelming majority of races. Rick Hassan, who's been on our program, says money doesn't win elections, but it gives you a much better chance of being elected. What is your sense of these arguments?
3: Um, You know, I agree with those arguments generally. I think perhaps even more importantly, money buys you access and influence after Election Day. And that is one of the most troubling aspects of money in our our electoral process today, the ability to get access and influence uh, for those who are able to write big checks during the campaign process. And, And, you know, in the Republican presidential primary contest, for example, I think we started with somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 candidates. Every one of them, I believe, except for Donald Trump, was being supported by a super PAC. So, you know, to point to Jeb Bush's failed candidacy and say, well, he had a big super PAC and his candidacy failed, so that means super PACs are worthless and can't buy you an election. Well, that discounts the fact that uh, almost every other candidate has a super PAC supporting him or her, and it has become necessary, at least at the federal level, to have super PAC support in order to become a viable candidate. Thank you for that.
1: Well, speaking of super PACs, uh, David Keating, you recently wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal with Edward Crane of the Cato Institute that begins, if you're looking for the villains who created the so-called super PACs, look no further. We are the guilty parties. And you say that we are two of the winning plaintiffs in Speech Now versus Federal Election Commission, decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in March 2010. You say that Speech Now, not Citizens United, made super PACs possible and legal Tell us about speech now, and why you think it was correctly decided on constitutional grounds.
2: Well, the uh, you know I think it's worth remembering what the Constitution says about the first, and what the First Amendment says, and the key part of the First Amendment when it comes to political speech is Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. And what we have is a thicket of laws, and one of the one of the crazy. Uh, concepts that we had in the law was one person could spend an unlimited amount of money uh, on speech, whether it was buying an ad in the newspaper or something on the radio or TV. But the law said two people couldn't get together and pool their money or three or four or five if any one of them put more than $5,000 into the pot. And I said, well, that's a really strange concept. So I said, this can't possibly be the case under the First Amendment. So I, I talked to the group that I now run, the Center for Competitive Politics, and said, I want to start a group to work for free speech rights in the, elect, in, the, in the campaigns for office, supporting candidates that support free speech, opposing those that who don't. And I want to form a group where all of us can put money in together and speak to fellow citizens. That's basically what's speech now is. Individuals pooling their money and then speaking to other citizens about who we think they should vote for and why. And to make long story sh- short, the, the court said, you can do it. Now, the Citizens United case made our uh, lawsuit an open and shut case at that point. But I, we were very confident about this going in because going back to 1976 and the landmark case, Buckley v. Vallejo, which interpreted the Federal Election Campaign Act, the Supreme Court said you can't limit the amount of money uh, that people can spend speaking uh, to people. So if one person can do it, clearly then more than one person uh, can get together and form a group.
1: Okay, thanks so much. Um, Okay, Um, now, uh, Paul, take us through the doctrine here. It's complicated, and I always need to remind myself about Buckley's distinction between Contributions to a candidate, which uh, the Supreme Court said, uh, could be limited because they could be potentially corrupting, as opposed to expenditures by individuals, which the Supreme Court said could not be limited in Buckley if they weren't coordinated with the candidate's campaign. But Speech Now went went further and said the First Amendment, First Amendment allows lots of individuals to pool their resources and, and use this right to make independent expenditures that one person was allowed to make under Buckley. Uh, d- d- does the Speech Now decision allowing super PACs follow directly from Buckley, or did you need Citizens United really to make it possible?
3: Well, you know, it, it's hard to say for certain, but I think the fact that the Supreme Court had decided the Citizens United case about three months prior to the D.C. Circuit deciding the Speech Now case um, certainly helped the court. Uh, reach its outcome in speech now and give birth to super PACs. In fact, the D.C. Circuit explicitly cited the Supreme Court's reasoning in Citizens United and said, uh, to summarize it, hey, the Supreme Court just told us in Citizens United that independent expenditures don't pose a threat of corruption. We, the D.C. Circuit Court, thereby conclude that money raised by a group that only wants to make independent expenditures also does not pose a threat of corruption and therefore cannot be limited consistently with the First Amendment. So, um, it, it's tough to tell whether or not David and his colleagues and the plaintiff's SpeechNow would have won their case absent a Supreme Court decision in Citizens United, but the Citizens United decision certainly uh, paved the way and made it easier. But one really important point about Speech Now, in my opinion, is that it was really, an as an invented plaintiff, that was an idealized version of what a super PAC might be. And David, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the... Super PAC only ended up spending, I think making one major ad buy back in around twenty eleven, spent a couple hundred thousand dollars and really hasn't done anything since. But what speech now told the court was, hey, we don't have any connection to any candidates and or parties, and we will um raise and spend money completely independently of candidates and parties, and led the court to believe that they would do this over election cycles on issues around the First Amendment, et cetera. Now, What we actually have, post-Citizens United and post-Speech Now, what are actually the predominant model for super PACs are single-candidate shadow campaign committees. Going back to the 2012 presidential cycle, for example, we had Restore Our Future, which was the super PAC, dedicated to the election of Mitt Romney president. We had Priorities USA, which was the super PAC, dedicated to the election of President Obama. In the 2016 cycle, it has pretty much become required or viewed that way, at least by most political players, to have a single-candidate super PAC. Jeb Bush had right to rise. And Mark Elias, who is a very prominent Democratic Party attorney who is representing Hillary Clinton in this campaign cycle, he went to the Federal Election Commission on behalf of a different client, Majority PAC, a Democratic super PAC, last fall and asked the FEC to bless his plan and the Democratic Party's plan, Majority PAC's plan, to have all major down-ballot candidates. Uh, Senate and House candidates set up their own single candidate super PACs themselves, much like Jeb Bush did. So the super PACs we have today are much different than the ones that were uh, written about by speech now in that case that convinced the court to to allow them to come into existence.
1: Thanks for that. Uh, David, uh, Paul says that these single candidate super PACs, uh, like Right to Rise, can influence or buy influence after an election. Uh, Citizens United defined corruption very narrowly. It said basically you have to prove, you know, if you give me money, I'll give you a favor. And that was not the case for these so-called independent expenditures. But uh, critics of Citizens United say when you've got people giving money for a super PAC that's dedicated to a single candidate it's bound to buy influence after the fact. What's the response to to that?
2: Well, everybody has influence. (laughs) I mean, where, where are we going to draw the line? How much influence is too much? The person that arguably was the most influential in 2008 was uh, Oprah. Political scientists looked at the value of her endorsement, and they said it was probably worth $10 million because she was such a trusted public figure. So if people have too much influence, what do, what do we do? We pass a law saying... You shouldn't have influence. You're not allowed to speak. No, that's, that's silly. Um, All, all people are doing here is speaking. They're speaking independently of the campaigns. And even if you accepted the idea that they might have too much influence, it would be better to say they shouldn't be allowed to talk to the elected official rather than not allowing them to talk to the public as a whole. Because what, when we do things like that we're saying there's going to be less quantity of speech and who is going to decide who gets to speak and fundamentally what's going to happen is the government is going to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't or how much certain person certain people get to speak and who doesn't and that is an extremely dangerous path to go on so as long as the speech is, you know i think the court drew the line To the extent there are going to be contribution limits, and that's another topic for discussion, those probably shouldn't be constitutional. But if you're going to have contribution limits, you have to let people speak without limit, and the only way to do that is to let them speak. Now, as far as speech now being an invented case, I, I take offense to that. This is something we wanted to do, we felt very strongly about this. A lot of us, found what was really offensive was in 2002 um, the McCain-Feingold bill became law and it made it a criminal offense for an organization that was incorporated to mention the name of a candidate within 60 days of an election if the ad was broadcast on TV or radio. Think about that for a minute. It was a criminal offense for an organization to mention the name of a candidate or an elected official running for reelection on radio or TV with a paid communication. That's stunning. And these are the kinds of laws, these are the kinds of complicated things that we wanted to fight back against. When Speech Now was finally given the green light to operate, and unfortunately it took over two years, which to me is another offensive thing in and of itself. That we were not allowed to speak in the 2008 election, and we were barely allowed to speak in the 2010 election. And when we were finally able to speak, who was up for reelection but Russ Feingold? And that's when we finally ran our ads. And the average person in the Milwaukee area saw these ads between eight and 10 times. So I I don't say that that is, I wouldn't say anyone would say that's a trivial amount. That was an important amount, and I'm not claiming it led to his defeat or the victory of his opponent, but it was something that allowed us to speak.
1: Thank you for that. So, Paul, I I want to focus on the constitutional, not the policy issue, because this is a a constitutional debate. And David has said that more uh, spending by super PACs can lead to more information available on the candidates. Uh, He says that super PACs are the reason why the GOP primary uh, this year is a horse race, not a coronation. As a, as a constitutional matter, what is the response to that? Is, is the claim that, the, uh, that money is not uh, speech or is the claim that uh, the court defined corruption too narrowly as quid pro quo corruption and stood, should instead tap into this strong anti-corporate tradition dating back to Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson that believed that uh, money in politics could be uh, regulated uh, because of the dangers of uh, creating the appearance of corruption?
3: Well, I I think there are a number of different problems with our jurisprudence today, and one is precisely the definition of corruption that you just mentioned, that in the Citizens United decision, and then more recently, even in the McCutcheon decision, the Supreme Court did, I think, um, pare back the definition of what constitutes corruption and pared it back to, as you've described, essentially quid pro quo corruption. But as recently as 2003, a majority of the Supreme Court in the McConnell decision referred to that quid pro quo definition of corruption as a crabbed view of corruption and was highly critical of it. And in that decision in 2003, which upheld the mccain feingold law almost in its entirety, the court recognized, in my view, a much more realistic definition of what constitutes corruption, including buying access and influence. Now, David had said, well, everyone has influence. Well, uh, the real problem, in my view, is when people can buy access and influence. Uh, And that is something that the Supreme Court at one point in time in the not-too-distant past was very troubled by, um, but the majority, at least the majority of the court prior to the passing of Justice Scalia uh, started uh, tending away from or trending away from in more recent decisions. So the definition of corruption really matters. I think we had a a realistic recognition of of the fuller scope of what constitutes corruption in the 2003 McConnell decision and a, a crabbed view of corruption in the court's own words more recently.
1: Thank you for that. David, uh, you know, what in the Constitution tells us how broadly to define corruption? When I, when I teach constitutional law, I never have a good answer to students who ask, you know, how does the court decide what's a compelling interest because there's not really any clear methodology for it? The Buckley case just announced that uh, fighting corruption was a compelling interest, although it didn't uh, precisely define corruption. I think you believe, if I understand you, that the that the Buckley case should be overturned and that donors should be allowed to give money to candidates. Directly, but as a constitutional matter, do you think that uh, f- stopping some sort of corruption is a compelling interest, and why? And, and how precisely should we define corruption?
2: Well, I the um, again, I, you know what Paul what Paul said was that um, among other things, it's okay to regulate the amount of speech. Congress should be able to limit the amount of speech people can do about the government. And really, without any limitation, it seems he, he's not willing to say there are any limits on this speech that Congress should be able to, to limit this speech if If this is important what which and i i I don't believe it is at all to uh, limit the speech of people that if you're concerned about undue influence on elected officials, then ban them from talking to the elected officials directly, but don't ban them from talking to their federal fellow citizens. And the the idea that somehow campaign finance regulation has to ban or limit people from speaking publicly, I think is totally contrary to the First Amendment. It says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Now, that being said, this whole concept of corruption, there's no evidence that these campaign finance laws do anything to reduce corruption. Uh, If you look at states that have high corruption levels, Uh, or low corruption levels, and you look at the contribution limits or the campaign regulations in these states, there's no correlation. The states, in fact, some of the states that have the least amount of campaign finance regulation are the best run states in the country with the least corruption. So there's no evidence that any of these laws actually work to reduce corruption. Political scientists have also looked at trust in government, and they've looked at public opinion polling over decades. They've tracked states that have changed their laws to require more and more regulation of campaigns. And they've, again, they've found no difference in states that have stronger, stricter regulation of speech and states that don't, compared to people's views of trust in government. So even if you accept, That this is important. There's no evidence that any of these laws actually work to reduce corruption or people's attitudes about how much they trust government.
1: Okay. uh, Powerful, uh, provocative arguments. I'm I'm eager for your response. Paul, do you agree that there is no evidence that there's a correlation between uh, corruption and confidence in government and uh, campaign spending? And how would you relate this to Uh, Montana's uh, Corrupt Practices Act, this was a 1912 law that the Supreme Court uh, applied Citizens United to strike down 100 years later in 2012. This forbade Montana corporations from making campaign expenditures supporting or opposing a candidate or political party. And in doing so, the justices overturned the finding of the Montana Supreme Court, noting the long history of political corruption in Montana dating back to the progressive era. So is there or is there not a correlation between... Actual corruption and uh, campaign spending?
3: I think the best record of evidence of corruption stemming from the raising and spending of large amounts of money in the electoral sphere would be found both in the congressional record for the McCain Feingold Law and then set out in great detail in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia's decision upholding the McCain Feingold Law, the portion of the decision written by Judge uh, Colleen Kolar Cotelli in the McConnell case, the district court opinion is in excess of 100 pages going painstakingly through all of the evidence of corruption that the McCain-Feingold law was closely tailored to reduce. So um, I think that's where the best evidence of corruption is. In terms of the Montana case that got to the Supreme Court about a year after the Citizens United case, um, I thought it personally unwise for the state of Montana to uh, appeal their case to the U.S. Supreme Court for one reason, which is that the actual Evidence of corruption that existed in Montana in the late 1800s that led to the passage of that law had to do with uh, essentially bribing of members of the Montana state legislature, and including handing them cash on the floor of the legislature. The evidence that led to the enactment of that law in Montana more than 100 years ago had nothing to do with independent spending. And I think in order to get the Supreme Court to change its mind from its view in Citizens United, a case that it decided. For reasons I will spare our listeners, uh, without any evidentiary record whatsoever, the way it it was a procedural, the way it proceeded through the courts to the Supreme Court, there was no opportunity to develop an evidentiary record there. But there, the court just proclaimed that independent spending can't corrupt. No opportunity to compile a record. I think the only reason, the only way to get the court to change its mind on that point, is going to be to present evidence of corruption stemming from independent spending fundraising, um, as well as independent spending itself. Exhibit A, perhaps, in that case to come before the court sometime down the road, would be Senator Menendez. He was raising money for a super PAC. The super PAC was spending the money independently of candidates, but he is nevertheless under indictment for corruption. Um, I I think it's possible to compile that sort of factual record, and I think we'll aim to do so down the road. Uh,
1: Thanks for that. David, you uh, say that super PACs really are helpful in contributing to speech. You cite the example of Eugene McCarthy in 1972, who got most of his donations from a few wealthy donors and who opposed the restrictions that were upheld in Buckley. What's your response to the Menendez case and other anecdotal examples that large uh, expenditures can lead to corruption?
2: Well, first, I want to get the date right. Uh, McCarthy ran against LBJ. It was 1968. Forgive me. Thanks for that. And, um, I mean... We have to keep in mind, the idea that somehow campaign finance laws are a panacea that they're leading to better government, I think is totally ridiculous. Before the Federal Election Campaign Act uh, was passed and and with its amendments in the mid-1970s, basically we had no limitations on how much could be spent uh, for either giving money to candidates' uh, campaigns directly or doing independent campaigns for the candidate. Now, this is the system that, you know, we elected Roosevelt, we, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Lincoln, on and on and on. Our country made incredible progress with the Civil Rights Act, um, many things. Uh, our, there's no doubt our country is a better country today than it was 200 years ago. And so the idea that campaign finance Changes are necessary to make our country operate better. I, I totally disagree with that. The idea that the McCain-Feingold Act, like Paul says, it was a closely, carefully tailored bill. It's totally ridiculous. The bill made it illegal, a criminal offense, for a group like the Humane Society to run an ad telling people to call the local congressman and to vote for a. Bill to help protect animals. If the ad was run within sixty days of an election, I don't see that type of restriction on speech as something that helps us improve our government. Basically, what it says is we're not allowed to talk about our government, we're not allowed to pressure our government, all because of some wild theoreticals about what might happen. So, if we have a corrupt, if Senator Menendez is corrupt. And let's find the corruption and prosecute him for violating laws against bribery or selling his office to various people to, to do things. But the answer isn't to limit the speech of people, because that's something that helps protect corruption. If we can't speak out about our government, we're not going to be able to hold people in office to account.
0: I'm Nikandro Yanachi, producer of We the People. We'll return to our conversation with David and Paul in just a moment. Before we do, I want to take a second to thank you for listening and to ask you to help us make this podcast even better. We here at the National Constitution Center are very proud of the show, and we are so grateful to all of you for your support and for your commitment to thoughtful, nonpartisan debate. However, we know that we can always improve, and at this particular moment, when the center is dramatically expanding the breadth of its work, we want to reflect on where we are and where we're going. That's where you come in. You are a vital part of this process. Your feedback will help us decide where to invest our time and resources and what changes, big and small, will make your listening experience more interesting, more engaging, and more fun. So go to bit.ly slash WTP feedback to share your feedback. That's B-I-T slash WTP feedback. Happy listening.
1: All right, I want to turn now to the important question of anonymous speech uh, and to the Van Hollen case, which was decided recently by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Um, I think that, uh, Paul, rather than my describing it. Let me ask you to describe uh, the regulations at issue in Van Hollen. Well, I'll say that these were promulgated in response to the FEC versus Wisconsin right to life case and involved the uh, degree to which corporations and labor unions had to disclose um, donors for electioneering communications. Tell us about the regulation and the Supreme Court and the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals decision upholding it.
3: So there's a provision in the McCain-Feingold law that, that lawyers refer to as the electioneering communications provision that requires any group or any person, any individual, um, but this provision mainly applies to groups, as will be apparent in a minute, requires every person spending more than $10,000 per year on electioneering communications to disclose, quote, all contributors who contributed over $1,000 to that person in, in the specified time frame in the statute. Now, what the FEC did in 2007 by regulation was to narrow that requirement of disclosure of all contributors who contributed over $1,000 to instead only require groups spending money on election ads to disclose the donors who gave, quote, for the purpose of furthering election year communication. So they added a donative purpose requirement to an otherwise um, pretty effective disclosure regime. And we saw overnight a disappearance of donor disclosure by groups buying these election ads, these ads mentioning candidates within 30 days of primary or 60 days of the general. Um, Campaign Legal Center is part of the legal team that has sued the FEC over this rule, um, representing Representative Chris Van Hollen. And just a couple days ago, we actually filed a petition for reconsideration um, by the en banc D.C. Circuit Court, meaning the entire court, because the the decision you just referenced came from a three-judge panel of the district court. We think there are couple of major problems, a couple of major errors with the D.C. Circuit Court's decision. Um, We've won this case twice before the district court level, where the district court has said, yeah, this FEC rule is invalid. It violates the Administrative Procedures Act because it improperly interprets a provision of federal statute. And we have now lost the case twice before the D.C. Circuit. We are now going up on, trying to go up on appeal to the entire DC Circuit beyond the three judge panel that decided the case most recently. And um, two bases for this uh, request to have the whole en banc court rehear this case. One is that the the circuit court panel that just upheld the bad FEC rule, bad in my opinion, did so on grounds that the panel itself conceded were inconsistent with Supreme Court precedent. The court ruled contrary to what the court said in Citizens United and even in McCutcheon and in McConnell as well, that this type of disclosure was um, not necessary. And in fact, they, they used some quite unflattering language, but language that the Supreme Court itself had completely rejected eight members of the U.S. Supreme Court in several recent decisions. So that's the principal reason we're seeking en banc review in this case. And we also just believe that the, the circuit court's decision completely conflicts with some other D.C. circuit precedent about how courts are supposed to analyze these sorts of Administrative Procedures Act. So sort of technical, in the weeds, but the bottom line is that the Supreme Court in Citizens United upheld these disclosure provisions by an 8-to-1 margin. They had likewise done so in 2003 in the McConnell decision, and we just think the circuit court in Van Hollen got it wrong.
1: Okay, thanks for that. Uh, David, this is technical, but it's important and is the next frontier in anonymous speech. So just to review this regulation by the by the commission requires corporations or labor unions to disclose the names of people who make donations to them for the purpose of furthering electioneering communications. Uh, but, and they justified this by saying that without this purpose requirement, individual contributors to a union or corporation who don't support the electioneering communications could be mistakenly characterized as supporting the messages. There's some other uh, reasons as well, including a privacy rationale. They said the commission tailored its regulation that effectuates the disclosure requirements and protects privacy. And then there was a really interesting passage in the decision which talks about uh, the following tension. The court said both an individual's right to speak anonymously and the public's interest in campaign contribution disclosures are now firmly entrenched in the supreme court's first amendment jurisprudence and yet they are also fiercely antagonistic disclosure chills speech speech without disclosure risks corruption uh, the center the court said cannot hold uh, what do you think of this tension between uh, disclosure and anonymity and do you think that the uh, van holland uh, decision uh, struck the right balance
2: well look the I think the the court got it right. Uh, basically, the FEC was, I think Paul's way oversimplified what happened here. Uh, the FEC had to come in and try to interpret a law where organizations, have, as I said a couple times earlier, the original McCain-Feingold law made it crim- a criminal offense for an organization to run an ad that mentions the name of an elected official. Running for re-election within 60 days of the election, the Supreme Court finally came to its senses and struck that provision down and said, "Well, of course, uh, corporations can do that." So the FEC was let was left with, "Well, how do we interpret uh, a disclosure law, where where the organizations were completely banned from speaking in the first place?" And there were a lot of complicated problems to try to try to address. I mean. Should anyone who's donated to the organization have to be disclosed, even if they they didn't uh, give any money to support the particular communication? In fact, the decision said, in addition to the general burden, so I'm going to quote here, the specific disclosure requirement Van Hollen advocates here would present its own unique harms. For example, an American Cancer Society donor who supports cancer research, but not ACSs, American Cancer Society political communications must decide whether a cancer cure or their associational rights are more important to her. This is categorically uh, distinct from deciding whether a political issue such as tax reform is as important as one's associational rights. Basically, what you've got is a situation where a lot of people join organizations, support organizations, and give money to the organizations. And I think the FEC, on a bipartisan basis, they came up with a, a, a rule, a disclosure rule, that actually was up upheld in the Supreme Court Citizens United decision that essentially said, if you give money to support these ads during this electioneering communications period, then those people get disclosed. But the, the people who've just given general dues or other support Uh, do not have to be disclosed. And Again, it was a bipartisan uh, agreement by the FEC to come up with a rule like this. It it was a rule that I think was reasonably drafted, had reasonable um, uh, looking at court decisions and other things. It was a reasonable approach. And basically that's all the appeals court said, is that the FEC took a reasonable approach. And given the jurisprudence about courts overturning agency decisions, they're not supposed to do it unless the agency hasn't taken a reasonable approach. And I think it's going to be really tough for the en banc circuit, if it even takes the case, to overrule uh, the appeals the three-judge panel, because it, it would not only overturn a rule by the FEC, it would throw into question many, many other rules by other agencies, not just this one. So I think they're going to be very reluctant to do it.
1: Thank you for that. All right. Well, let's ask the broader question raised by the Van Hollen decision about the tension between anonymity and disclosure. Uh, uh, Paul, do we have a problem with what's called dark money today, money coming from nonprofits who don't have to disclose donors to the FEC, or do we have the opposite problem, that we have too many disclosure requirements? And and more broadly, is anonymous electioneering a constitutional right, or is the right to disclosure uh, more of a constitutional right? How would you strike the balance?
3: I think we have an enormous problem of dark money in elections. More than $600 million spent in federal elections alone since the Citizens United decision by groups that did not disclose their donors, did not disclose where they got that money. And in the Citizens United decision itself, and this is a portion of the opinion that was signed by eight of the court's nine members, every member except Justice Thomas. Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, wrote The First Amendment protects political speech, and disclosure permits citizens and shareholders to react to the speech of corporate entities in a proper way. This transparency enables the electorate to make informed decisions and give proper weight to different speakers and messages. The Court and Citizens United assured us of two things. One, well, I'll back up one step. The Court and Citizens United Recognized that it was unleashing a flood of unlimited money in our elections. But it made two assurances. It said, essentially, don't worry, American voters. Um, first of all, this money will be spent independently of candidates. And we haven't touched on this subject yet, although David has alluded to it several times. The rules defining coordination between candidates and outside spenders today are a joke. And David suggested, and I agree with his suggestion, that one policy reform would be to more heavily restrict These independent spenders in their interactions with candidates. Um, I think he actually said ban speakers from talking to public officials. Um, I would word it a little bit differently, but strengthening these coordination regulations. But the second thing the Supreme Court and Citizens United promised us was that we would have disclosure. And the $600 million in dark money disclosure, or I'm sorry, in dark money spending in our elections since Citizens United made clear that the court majority that unleashed this money in our elections, they were either disingenuous or naive when they thought that the disclosure laws on the books would work. We do not have the disclosure that Justice Kennedy promised us. We do not have the disclosure that Justice Scalia was a champion of his entire uh, professional career as a, ju- as a justice on the Supreme Court. So we need to strengthen our disclosure laws to get the disclosure the Supreme Court promised us.
1: Uh, thank you for that. Uh- David, as, as Paul said, Justice Thomas and Citizens United did suggest that the right to speak anonymously might cl- call disclosure requirements uh, into question. Uh, do you agree with them constitutionally?
2: Well, Justice Thomas is, you know, by and large against disclosure requirements. He had a very, I thought, an excellent opinion on this, and hopefully the court someday will come around to his point of view. That being said, the amount of disclosure that we have today, a lot of it is ridiculous. It's, point, it's pointlessly drafted. Um, organizations such as the organization Paul works for uh, defend these nonsensical laws. Uh, look, somewhat, one can agree that disclosure uh, can u- serve useful purposes, but the disclosure laws as they're drafted now are silly. The disclosure thresholds are far too low. Let me give you a couple examples. Right now, if, if you want to donate to it, when we first passed the disclosure laws in the 1970s, uh, the disclosure threshold was, uh, a, I believe, $100. It, in 1979, was raised to $200. So if you donated that amount to a candidate, it would be in the public record. But where was the public record? It was in a filing cabinet in a federal agency in Washington, D.C., So to go look that up, you had to basically go to the FEC to look it up. Today, you can Google anyone's name and see how much they gave to basically any federal candidate. And if it's over $200, it's, it's available online to anyone. Now, what is the point of that exactly? There is no point to that. That's a totally ridiculous thing to have disclosed. And we should encourage people who want to give small donations to give these small donations to candidates. Um, and, and not to have their name on the Internet for everyone to see because their boss may not like it, uh, who they're giving to, or they may be supporting a candidate with very you know radical views or something. So I think we've got to raise the disclosure thresholds for giving money to candidates at the very least. The second thing is we have to raise the, the thresholds for even registering and reporting. Um, right now we are defending someone in mis- the state of Missouri He's a volunteer citizen. He believes strongly that the legislature should do certain things. So on his own dime, uh, he, he put together uh, a Facebook page. He goes to the Capitol. He buttonholes legislators. He does this for free. And then he alerts people on his Facebook page to legislation in the legislature. And so the Missouri Ethics Commission came after him and said, you have to file a register report as a lobbyist. And you have to pay a thousand dollar fine. I mean, these kinds of requirements are ridiculous, and we really need to, to get rid of them or at least make them a lot more sensible than they are today.
1: Great. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to. My last question is about the future of campaign finance reform. Uh, it's been much mooted in the election. Both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have criticized Citizens United and pledged to appoint. Supreme Court justices who will overturn it. Uh, The Republicans are having a a debate of their own. Donald Trump has called super PACs horrible and says that he supports campaign finance reform, uh, while Ted Cruz has been a supporter of Citizens United uh, before and throughout this election cycle. Uh, So my question, uh, Paul, is uh, how will the future president, both through uh, policies and future Supreme Court nominees, play a role in uh, determining the future of campaign finance reform?
3: Um, its its definitely will be the case that the next president will play a major role in determining the future of campaign finance reform in the United States for the reasons you've described the Supreme Court. This matter always ends up in the hands of the Supreme Court. We now have a vacancy on the court. If it is not filled this term, uh, which presumably it will be not not be filled, if it's not filled by President Obama, it will be filled by the next president. And we have an aging Supreme Court. So there are likely to be other uh, vacancies on the court, other nominations for our next president to make. So the importance of this presidential election for the future of campaign finance reform, for the future of the Supreme Court cannot be understated.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, David, last word to you. What will the significance of the presidential election be on the future of campaign finance debate in the United States?
2: Well, I don't think anyone knows, basically. <laughs> I mean, it certainly could It certainly could be pivotal. Uh, but we We've been surprised by many things during this election year, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few more twists and turns before the next uh, Supreme Court justice is nominated uh, and maybe confirmed. So really anything can happen. That being said, there, there are a lot of other Supreme Court decisions. Um, Massachusetts Citizens for Life, in many respects, is quite similar to the Citizens United decision, but because it didn't let profit making companies participate in election campaigns, um, it was not at all as controversial. So even if the court did roll back the Citizens United decision to something before it, there's still other decisions. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, even a, a justice that President Obama might nominate and get confirmed if that's possible. Would overturn these other decisions. So I'm still optimistic um, for the future of free speech. And I think, I think one way that it can look, we can look at it is hopefully the court is getting to the point someday where we'll all talk about the concept of separation of campaign and state. Uh, this is something that our chairman Brad Smith, who's a, a law professor at Capital University, uh, wrote about a couple of years ago in a law review. Everyone gets the idea of separation of church and state, that the state is not allowed to regulate uh, religious activities. We really need to have a concept, separation of campaign and state. People should be able to speak out without limitation about their government. So hopefully that's a direction the court will decide to go on in the future.
1: Thank you so much, David Keating and Paul Ryan, for an illuminating, substantive, and meaningful discussion about campaign finance reform. We will continue to follow the constitutional issues raised by this crucial question throughout the presidential campaign. David, Paul, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having us, we I enjoyed it. Thanks
3: for having me.
1: Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page. Facebook.com backslash ConstitutionCTR. And on our Twitter feed, at Constitution CDR. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the Center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com backslash panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.